Luke 19, uh, verses 28 through 40. Give ear to the reading of God's word. It says, And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem, that is called Olivet. He sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you where you are entering. You will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Uh, Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why are you untying it, you shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away, uh, sent went away and found it just as he had told them. Uh, and as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on, on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, Palm Sunday is obviously the the, uh, the Sunday that commemorates the triumphal entry of Christ. It is the Sunday uh, right before Easter Sunday, one week apart. Uh, and as we just read, this is when Jesus uh, rode into the city of Jerusalem, the capital there, in, in a triumphal, doesn't look much, like much of a triumph, but a triumphal fashion. And this is the triumphal entry, if you understand, understand it rightly, it's his royal entry into Jerusalem. It was uh, sort of a king's welcome. This was his open acknowledgement that he was uh, truly the Messiah, the anointed king of God, uh, God's chosen king and the redeemer of his people. You might know, if you've read the Gospels a number of times, you might remember there were times when people tried to make him king by force before the time. There were times when, when uh, various people and individuals tried to openly acknowledge him as king, and he always seemed to, uh, you know, shy, shy away from that until now. This is his open acknowledgement that yes, he is the Messiah. For all to see, he's not hiding from it, and it's not a coincidence that the very next major thing that we find happening in the ministry, the earthly ministry of Christ, is his crucifixion. He came to be a king, but not the kind of king, at least at that time, that they were expecting him to be. And his way of conquering wasn't the way that they had been hoping that it was going to be. He came to be their king and redeemer, uh, but not the way that they had supposed. John twelve thirteen is where we're told about the palm branches. It says that the people greeted him with branches of palm trees. Mark 11, verse 8, uh, there we're told that many spread their cloaks on the road before him. It's as if they don't even want the donkey's hooves to get dirty. Now, that, that's not something you would normally do, but this is what they did in greeting Christ upon his entry into Jerusalem. Um, how important is the triumphal entry? We might, might not think about it too much if it weren't for Palm Sunday. Um, it's important enough that all four of the Gospels in the New Testament contain accounts of it. Now, you might say to yourself, well, that's, that's true of lots of things, but it really isn't. We have four Gospels, and they're very alike in many ways, but um, if you were to try to number, which I won't try to do this morning, the, you know, kind of map out the things that they all talk about, 
the number of those, those things is quite limited. You might, you might read the same things in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but not in John. How many times in the four Gospels do you have a birth narrative? It's pretty important. We celebrate Christmas every year, but it's only in two of the Gospels. That doesn't mean that they don't think his birth is, was important, but the fact that they all point out the triumphal entry should be something that gets our attention. You think about what this what this is, and uh, it's kind of like a parade. It's not it's not the usual parade. You know, I know we haven't had a parade in a couple of years. Seems like now we're, we're going to miss our rodeo parade again here in Ramona. Looks like again this year. Um, you know, when you're when I was a kid, we always loved parades. Well, this is a parade with one person really in it. If if you were a stranger at that time and didn't know what was going on and saw this man riding in on the colt of a donkey, you'd probably be wondering, what's all the fuss about? Uh, But when you think about the fact that he is the one that was foretold all through the Old Testament, that that the Messiah, this, this coming figure, was foretold and prophesied from Genesis all the way until the day of Christ, you can see why this was such a big deal, or at least something of why this was such a big deal. So this morning we're going to look at a few things, Lord willing, about this triumphal entry of Christ on on Palm Sunday. We're going to see what Luke has to tell us about the authority of the king, of the Messiah. Secondly, the reception of the king, the reception he got from the crowd there. And also, thirdly, the praise of the king. So the authority, the reception, and the praise of the king. So first, the authority of Jesus as the king, as the Messiah, Luke's account of the triumphal entry kind of paints this picture for us of Christ's authority in a number of ways. And the first one of those ways is his ability to command obedience. His ability to command obedience. What he says goes. And what he says happens. He tells them what to do. They do it. He tells them what they're going to see. That's what they see. Look at verse 30 again. He says in verse 30, To the disciples, go into the village that's in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. And that's that's just what they did. They went and that's what they found. Um, Now think about this. This is kind of like, in some regard, it's hard for us to see an equivalent of it. It's kind of like borrowing someone's car without asking. They went to someone's place, saw a colt tied, and untied it. Uh, it was it belonged to someone. It wasn't a wild colt. Uh, and he even tells them what to do if somebody objected to it. You know, and, and probably in their minds they were thinking, well, okay, because someone's going to object to it. It wasn't it wasn't a shock that someone did. And he what does he tell them to say? You know, we're so used to seeing the word Lord on the page sometimes of our of our Bibles that it it kind of goes right over our heads. He tells them. Tell them the Lord has need of it. That's it. The Lord has need of it. And that's exactly what they, what they, uh, told them. And when he says, uh, that the, you know, if the owners tell them, you know, what are you doing? The word owners there is the same word as Lord. It's, it's literally the Lords of it. The Lords of that donkey that the Lord has need uh, of it. Another way that our text demonstrates the power and authority of Christ as king is his omniscience and his foreknowledge. He tells the disciples uh, where to go and what they would find. They wouldn't just find a donkey. That might not be hard to find, but a colt on which no one has ever yet sat. No one's ever sat on this thing. That's the one you're going to find. Um, And it wasn't a wild goose chase. And for him to say that it wasn't something that they were likely to find, 
just because. It wasn't some random thing that he told them to find. It was something that they probably would not normally find, and yet he tells them to go find it, and that's exactly what they found. Uh, J.C. Ryle notes this. He says, passages like these are meant to remind us that the man Christ Jesus is not only man, he is also God-blessed forever. The, The deity of Christ is kind of shining through here a little bit. We are to see that when we see this text and his instructions to the disciples and what follows after it. Not only that, but Jesus in our text in the verses following it actually prophesies about the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. Look at verses 43 and 44. He tells them, For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. It's a kind of a terrifying picture, but it's a prophecy that came literally came true down to the letter. They rejected Christ in a lot of ways on his triumphal entry, and so what they would have later was a conquering enemy entering the city and destroying it. You know, the Jews, you might know, revolted against Rome in A.D. 66. And so in response, what did Rome do? Exactly what Jesus says. They laid siege to Jerusalem. They cut off food and supplies from the city. Many within its walls died of starvation. And then in 70 A.D. under Titus, the city of Jerusalem was was sacked by Rome. The temple itself was destroyed, and men, women, and children were killed by the thousands, just as Jesus foretold. It was torn down and razed to the ground. The historian Josephus has a book, you might uh, maybe even have read some of it, called The Wars of the Jews, and this is what he says. It was so thoroughly laid, even with the ground, by those that dug it up to the foundation, that there was left nothing to make those that came thither believe it had ever been inhabited. Think about the picture that this historian is painting. You would have walked up and said, there was a city here? That's the picture that he paints. That's a terrifying picture and prophecy of judgment. But think about this. That that prophecy of judgment from Christ is just a foreshadowing of the final judgment for sin, which is yet to come. Now, how many of us, when, when I read that description, even the one from Josephus, tremble at that description of earthly calamity and destruction, but hardly give a second thought to the final day of judgment when Christ returns again. You know, Christ came in humility the first time. What do we say every every time we recite the, the, the Nicene Creed? We say, He shall come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. He's not coming in humility next time. He's coming in all of His glory to judge the nations. Jesus himself tells us in Matthew 10, 28, he says, Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. You know, many in our day, in every day, every every age, people have mocked the idea of judgment, that God is going to judge, or that God even, if he exists, that he cares about the affairs of men. Um, But think about this. If Jesus' prophetic words about Jerusalem and the judgment to come upon them came to pass so precisely, how much more should we give heed when he speaks of the final judgment on that last day? The unbeliever should think about that very much, very long and hard. Uh, Jesus also demonstrates his authority as king 
by fulfilling messianic prophecy. Our text doesn't emphasize that as much, but why was it that Jesus had to come into Jerusalem riding on the colt of a donkey, which was a royal mount? It wasn't like it wasn't a royal mount, but uh, it was to fulfill the words of, of Zechariah 9, verse 9. This is what it says. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you righteous and having salvation. Is he humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey? You have to expect that many of the people in that crowd had been taught that passage in Zechariah 9. And when they saw the Messiah coming in on the colt of a donkey... They recognized it as the fulfillment of what it was. You know, Luke doesn't point it out in so many words, but both Matthew and John's Gospels make it clear that that triumphal entry of Christ riding into the city on the back of that donkey's colt was a direct fulfillment of Zechariah 9, verse 9. It's one more proof that Jesus was indeed the Messiah who was to come. He is the king who was to come, having salvation and humbly riding on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And the fact that he was having salvation when he came, what does even that point you forward to? And not in so many words, it doesn't hit you over the head. It's pointing forward to his death on the cross for our salvation from sin. His first coming, his, his triumphal entry even itself, was for his death on the cross for our sins. Well, the second thing our text shows us about Christ's triumphal entry is the reception of the king, the kind of reception that he received there in Jerusalem, and also how... The, how various people in the crowd uh, responded to or received Christ. How did the crowds receive Jesus? What was their reception of Christ on that day? They received him, to say the least, enthusiastically, didn't they? The closest thing I can think of in recent memory to compare to this, which probably doesn't compare to it, you know, I, I don't think we have any concept of the number of people that were involved, uh, that were there at Christ's triumphal entry. But you know, I think about recent political Events. You know, if you think about uh, for perhaps maybe President Obama's first uh, campaign, some of the uh, speeches that he gave and some of the crowds that showed up were uh-huh. unbelievable. This past uh, election cycle, President Trump had some rather lar- large crowds, some pretty unbelievable crowds, uh, probably horrified many in our day because of all the things going on with COVID. But you think about this, why, why were those crowds so big? Probably a lot of reasons. People just like being around famous people. But, you know, I, I, I got the impression sometimes that some of these people in both, in both sides, frankly, kind of had messianic expectations. You know, some of those same kinds of things were said during these campaigns. I remember somebody saying that the oceans were going to recede, you know, the tides were going to recede if Obama was elected, all these things. But I think, you know, the, we, we see these people as deliverers. And so people flocked to them in, in droves by the thousands and thousands. Well, I think Jesus' crowd probably overwhelmed and, and made those look small by comparison. But um, I think the same kind of idea was in mind with some of the people in this crowd. He's going to be the one to deliver us from our oppressors, from the, the, from the Romans. Now, what did they do? They, they spread their cloaks and palm branches, According to Matthew 21, 8, on the road in front of him, they lined the road to Jerusalem to cheer him on as the coming king and the son of David, the Messiah. Look at verses 37 and 38. It says, As he was drawing near, already on the way down uh, the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. So some of these people had been following him and seen some of the things he had done. 
And what did they say? Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. You might have recognized that from the call to worship this morning, which was from Psalm 118, verses 25 to 26, where it says this, Save us, we pray, O Lord. Uh, the word Hosanna means save us, we pray. So save us, we pray, or Hosanna, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, we bless you from the house of the Lord. Now that reception from that crowd sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Sounds like they had a pretty high view of who Christ uh, was and what he came to do. Uh, sounds like they had a pretty good grasp of the Psalms. And they, they, they didn't quote that Psalm for no reason when they saw him coming in. They were saying they believed that to some extent that he was the one that was to come. That's no small thing. They seem to have a pretty high view of Christ and who he was and what he came to do. Uh, but I think his coming in humility may have been somewhat confusing to them. He did not come in military might. He did not come on a war horse. Um, in fact, verse 11 of our text, if you look at verse 11, it's not part of our text, but of the chapter, what does it say? It says, as they heard these things, uh, he proceeded to tell them a parable, the parable of the ten minus why. Because he was near to Jerusalem and because they, the crowds, they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. What else would they expect in some ways? But they didn't understand. They thought he was coming in right now to set up his kingdom. Of course, that's not what, in an earthly sense, it's not what he came to do. So they had some understanding, but in other ways, they really didn't understand much of what he came to do at all. Now notice how the Pharisees reacted. So we see the crowds, they're, they're giving him praise. They're very enthusiastic. They may or may not really have believed upon him at that time. What about the Pharisees? They refused to believe on Christ. They were quite unhappy with the crowd's reaction to Jesus. And what did they even say in verse 39? Teacher, they're showing some respect. Teacher, rebuke your disciples. You're going to get us in trouble. You're, they're going to cause a problem for us. The Romans aren't going to take kindly to this welcoming him as the Messiah. They want him to rebuke them. Now, they called him teacher. That sounds awfully respectful, at least. Uh, you know. But on the surface, they were respectful. But inwardly, what, what is the case that we know to be true from reading the rest of the Gospels is that they hated him. Inwardly, they hated him. They despised him. They refused to receive him as the Christ. They would not believe on him or submit to his rule over them. And they certainly didn't want the crowds to get too carried away with believing on, on Jesus as the Christ, which would cause quite a few problems for them. You know, many today, even in the church, are content to call Jesus a good teacher, but they're unwilling to truly call him Lord. No man can call him Lord except by the Holy Spirit. You know, call, call Jesus one prophet among many, uh, and most people won't object. Even the followers of Islam call him a prophet. Many in this world, even unbelievers, will say, oh, you can call him a prophet, you can call him a teacher, uh, you can call him a good spiritual or moral teacher, and many people will tolerate that. No one's offended by morals, so to speak. Um, but he isn't just a good moral teacher. He's the Lord. He's God. You may have read the book Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis in that book. Lewis says this, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing 
that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God, they say. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says that he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, uh, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God, but let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. He's not just a good moral teacher. He's the Lord himself. And in the end, if you receive Jesus as nothing but a good moral teacher, you are rejecting him as Savior and Lord. You're accepting a Jesus of your own imagination, of your own devising. The Lord Jesus Christ did not come just to teach you or to improve you, but to save you from your sins. How? What does it mean to receive Jesus in order to be saved? How does one receive him? It's by faith. The Shorter Catechism, question 86, says this. What is faith in Jesus Christ? What does it mean to believe in Christ for salvation? What is faith in Jesus Christ? Answer, faith in Jesus Christ is a saving grace. It's from God. It's the work of God within you. It's a saving grace whereby we, we receive and rest upon him alone for salvation as he has offered to us in the gospel. To trust in Christ is to receive him as he's offered in the gospel and to rest upon him alone, to put your weight on him alone and depend upon him alone for salvation. To believe on him is to receive him. Those two things are practically synonyms. And to receive him the way he is offered to us in the gospel. And the, the scriptures, the, God, the word of God, is very clear about who Jesus is and what he came to do. He is God in the flesh, come to live and die in the place of sinners for our salvation. And so I ask this morning, are you, are you trusting in Christ alone for salvation? Have you received Christ as Lord and Savior? We talk about the crowd receiving him. Have you received him? That's the real, that's really the main question to ask. You know, John chapter 1 verses 9 to 13 says this, and it's really a picture of this triumphal entry in some ways. The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not what? Did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, that's how you receive him. To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Where does the new birth come from? You don't get to decide it on your own. It's not, what does it say, not of blood, you're not born into it, not of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. You don't decide to make yourself born again, but of God. And that is the only way that anybody receives Christ and believes in his name. There's a reason that John connects those two things together. 
When we read the accounts of the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ on that Palm Sunday, we should consider not just how he was received by the crowds on that day, as important as that is, whether they believed or not, but first and foremost, whether or not we ourselves have received him as Savior and King by faith. And so I ask this morning, is the Lord Jesus Christ your King? Are you praising and serving and worshiping him as your King of kings and Lord of lords by faith? And that leads us to one last thing from our text, and that's the praise of the King. The praise of the King. Not only did the crowds rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all his mighty works, verse 37, not only did they acknowledge Jesus as the Christ, as the blessed King who comes in the name of the Lord, fulfilling Psalm 118.26. But think about this. They did it to such an extent. How boisterous was their praise? It was loud enough and boisterous enough that it made the Pharisees quite uncomfortable. Those who hate Christ, they weren't comfortable with the idea of Christ being praised so publicly as the Messiah, as the King of God. It says some in the crowd, some of the Pharisees in the crowd told him, as we already read, to rebuke his disciples for it. Tell them to stop. You know, a, a rebuke means you're doing something wrong, right? A rebuke is not, you know, advi- pious advice, saying maybe we should tone it down just a little bit. A rebuke means they're doing something morally wrong. And what does Jesus tell them in, in reply? He says, he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. The stones would cry out if they did not cry out in praise to him. So something for us to think about. We mentioned it in prayer this morning, Wesley, Wesley's request. You know, we, we should not obviously emulate the stony hearts of the Pharisees. And we should also not be put to shame by those stones that Jesus put, uh, spoke of in our text. For the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, he is worthy of all of our praise. Uh, we shouldn't be uh, letting the stones get pressed into service while we still have breath in our lungs to praise him ourselves. And so, you know, this may not sound like much of an application, but when we sing together on the Lord's Day, I don't know if you're anything like me. Now, I have a microphone, so you think you have a bad People actually hear me sing, but, you know, do you, do you worry about what you sound like? Most of us probably wouldn't say we have great voices. Some of us do, but, um, you know, do you worry what you sound like in such a way that you don't sing? Uh, do you sing quietly or not at all because you don't want to be heard? Um, you know, perhaps I think sometimes um, we, we forget whose praise it is that we're singing. We forget who the audience is that we're singing to. You know, we do sing... Uh, to be heard by one another. Colossians three fifteen and 16 does say that, that we are to let the word of Christ dwell richly among us, and part of that is singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Uh, but it's also making melody in your heart to the Lord. The, the very first audience that we sing to when we sing God's praises is God himself. And so we should be remembering uh, who we're singing to. We're singing the praise of our Savior and King, that he's worthy of our very best, May we, as Paul says in Ephesians 5, 18 and 19, he says there, be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And then he adds, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Amen.